If you have a Bible, why don't you open up to Revelation chapter 21. If you need to use a Bible, feel free to grab one in the pew in front of you. I think it's page 977 or something like that. So, um, boy, we are wrapping up our study of Revelation. We just have two more messages this morning and next week, and then we are done. And uh, just at the, at the end of the year and starting a new series in January, it'd be really exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, if you have yourself at Revelation 21, would you stand as we read God's word together? It's a, a little bit of a long chapter, but uh, a great one. John the Apostle writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurements, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was of pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelve amethysts. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates were made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, 
but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb to the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm, I'm almost tempted to call it quits right there, right? <laughs> what more do we need to say? What an amazing, amazing picture of what awaits those who have placed their trust in Christ. And we come to the end of Revelation. Uh, well, there's really one more sermon after this, but we basically come to the end of Revelation this morning, really the end of the entirety of the Bible. Last week, I, I mentioned that we came to the last cycle of judgment and salvation. The book of Revelation is full of those. Revelation chapter 20 was the ultimate chapter, ultimate scene of judgment, concluding with the ultimate scene of salvation in chapters 21 and 22. And as if to, to give us a sense of what that salvation might entail, we see this amazing line in verse 5 of chapter 21, and behold, I am making all things new. I think that verse, chapter 21, verse 5, and then the verse, chapter 22, verse 4, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. Those two verses, I think, make up the emotional pillars of these two chapters. And God says, I make all things new, and God's people see his face. Newness is everywhere in these two chapters. You can't get away from it. As soon as we start reading, without first five verses, four times we're confronted about the newness of everything. We see here in verses one through five, there's a new heavens, and then there's a new earth, and there's a new Jerusalem, and then just all things are going to be made new. I think in part that's why people like uh, the end of Revelation. Some people get a little bit nervous about some of the, the, the juicy bits in the middle, right? The wrath and the scary things and the suffering. But everyone likes the end part of it, in part because of the newness of everything that comes out of the page. And, and, and newness resonates with our culture like any other time than before now. We like things that are new. New means hopeful. New means future. We often associate new with the young, with, with, with better, with improved, with energy, and we like that. If anything, we are a culture that is deathly afraid of what's old, what's broken down what's past. We, we, we don't want to be out of touch. We don't want to be forgotten. We don't want to be irrelevant. Celebrities, corporations, social media influencers, even many churches and pastors are stumbling over themselves to be relevant and new. By the way, we're so consumed with things having to be new, you, you'd think that we probably have an inborn drive for more than our passing lives will allow us. And this desire for what's new is part of, is kind of reveals ourselves to ourselves. To quote the poet Dylan Thomas, he says this, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. It's a powerful um, poem. 
many of you know it. Some of you may know it from the movie Interstellar. That was a big thing there. Maybe some of you may know it from college. I, I think that poem reveals something about our desire for newness. Now, on the one hand, as you're going to see this morning, I believe our desire for newness is actually something that God has given to us. When God designed the human species, and this is going back a couple weeks when I talked about our insatiable desires, God made us with a hunger for the new. But I think in our current cultural manifestation of that, it masks a darker side that Thomas's poem gets to. We are so hungry for the new in part because we are so afraid of the old and what it means. The temporal, the passing, the things that are faded, falling away, broken down. In other words, I think all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, we know intuitively we weren't built to pass away, to fade away, to be forgotten. We were made for life. We were made for the new, for the brand, the shiny, the, 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 the adventurous. That's what we were created for. That's what we yearn for. And everything in our reality fights against that experience, and we're caught in that tension. We feel deep down inside, I was made to go on. Not only that, I was made to, to enjoy and to be captivated and to be thrilled by the new. And yet everything in my experience, everything in the world around me is telling me otherwise. And for the cultural critics who are paying attention, and they, 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 they diagnose the situation pretty well, but they don't have any good solutions. I remember one person saying, just look at pop culture, the engines of our life, our movies, our TV shows, our music. They're nothing more than reboots, samplings of someone else's tracks and do-overs. As if there are no new stories to tell. That there are no new vistas to explore. No new adventures to be had. No new friends and companions to meet. And, and when we do find something that's new in our society and we get excited about it, it's just a matter of time before it becomes old, discarded, forgotten, too familiar, left behind, obsolete. I think God made us for the new. We feel that. Which is why I love the way the book of Revelation ends. I don't know if you picked up on it when I read it, but everything's new, right? Chapter 21 into chapter 22. All these pictures of newness that the tree of life every month is giving new fruit for that season. And the river of life is flowing. There's gold and abundance everywhere. And God is enthroned. It's just great. As, as, if, there, as if newness itself is a characteristic of God. Now, there's so much in these two chapters. I, I, I I could tell you everything, but by telling you everything about it, I'd tell you really nothing. So I just want to tell you, well, I want to focus on one kind of thing, and that is this, this newness that God has everywhere. And we see it three ways really clearly. The, the new cosmos, we saw that in verses 1 through 8. Uh, the new community, verses 9 through 27. And then finally, into chapter 22, just this new creation in chapter 22, one, verses 1 through 5. And, and let's, let's jump in and take a look at it. I don't know if you recognize, but as I read Revelation... Do you realize that Revelation, I don't just mean these last two chapters, but really taking a step back into our whole study of Revelation, we've been in that for almost a year, Revelation ends almost identically to the way Genesis begins the story. Did you pick up on that? In Genesis, God creates us, 
in Revelation, God recreates us. In, in Genesis, God creates the light. In Revelation, God is the light. In Genesis, Satan is introduced. In Revelation, he's cast away. In Genesis, man was barred from the tree of life. In Revelation, man has access to the tree of life. In Genesis, man is running away from God. In Revelation, man dwells with God. In Genesis, God creates the heavens and earth, but they are two separate things. But in Revelation, heavens and earth seem to meet. It's as if, it's as if at the conclusion, we're getting a, the, the message that God's covenant has finally come to pass. Now, you might say, well, there's a lot of covenants in the Bible. Which covenant are you talking about? The covenant that says God with us. Look at chapter 1, verse 20, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Isn't that the exact thing that we are celebrating at this Advent season? Isaiah the prophet in, in chapter 7 verse 14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years after Isaiah prophesied that, Matthew recorded these words. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means what? God with us. See, the very promise that God foreshadowed in the Old Testament, in the creation of the tabernacle, later in the, the temple, and then in Christ himself, is finally, ultimately, eternally realized here as Revelation concludes. God dwells with man. Man will dwell with God. Friends, this book, if you've been at Christ Community Church long enough, you know that, that I keep saying that this book is this one continuing saga with one theme woven through every book of the Bible, and that is God wants to be with his people. God wants to be with his people. The, the story begins in Genesis with God in, in, in eternity in glory, and the story ends in Revelation with God and his people in eternal glory, and at the center of the story is the cross where God reveals his glory through his Son. In other words, friends, we can't really understand redemption unless we understand the larger story of creation, which is why I had Larry read Genesis 2 as we started this morning. You see, Adam and then later Israel were placed in God's sanctuary. But, but, but Adam in the garden and Israel in the promised land, but neither Adam nor Israel were faithful and obedient sons. And so both of them were, were uh, expelled or ejected. Adam and Eve ejected from the Garden of Eden. The, the children of Israel ejected, exiled from the promised land. And that's the story of really the whole of the Old Testament until we get to Jesus, the, sec the second Adam, Corinthians calls him, or the last Adam, the son of Abraham, the son, the, the better son of David, the true Israel the faithful son of God who is obedient. But you know the narrative. What happens to Jesus? Humanity kills him. But God raises him from the grave, showing us that death was defeated, and we saw that in the book of Revelation, and that the decay of sin is now being erased, making possible the way for a new heavens and a new earth, a whole new creation made possible because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see this all through the scriptures. I'm going to go to Romans chapter 8. You can go there if you want with me. Romans chapter 8. Paul is talking about this, linking our salvation uh, with redemption. 
And so oftentimes we separate the one from the other, but what God is doing in us, he's doing in the world. So this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Just four verses later in verse 23, Paul goes on, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. So Paul's talking about future glory here, and he's linking Christ's work of salvation on the cross with the recreation, the new creation, a new heavens, a new earth, a new cosmos is made possible. Not only the creation, Paul says in Romans 8, 23, but we ourselves, and he has this line, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, what's it mean by the first fruits? Because none of us are farmers here that I'm aware of, and that's an agricultural term. The first fruits was the, the first fruits that would come up, guaranteeing you that the harvest was coming. And so what Paul is saying is we, the first fruits of the Spirit, he's talking about the regeneration we have of the Spirit, is the guarantee that there's a better future coming. More mind-blowing, friends, in Colossians 1.15, Paul says to the Colossian church that Jesus Christ is the firstborn over all creation. The point I'm getting at is that Christ himself makes the newness of revelation possible. So Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And when we say new here, what we mean is qualitatively new, fundamentally. And I don't mean like your kitchen remodeled new. I mean like new construction new, that the old is completely done away with and gotten rid of entirely. So the word that, Paul, that, that John is using in Revelation 21 is the same word that, that Paul is using in 2 Corinthians 5, describing the ultimate fulfilling of God's redemptive purposes. Not just new individuals, but an entirely kind of new order of things. Now, he's not saying new as in the latest version or latest in time. There would have been a different Greek word for that. He's saying new as in something categorically different, although there's some continuity. Imagine, if you would, watching a medieval puppet show, right, as entertainment compared to watching the next blockbuster at an 8K IMAX theater. They're both entertainment, but which one would you rather be a part of, right? One is completely in orders of magnitude different than the other. Hundreds, get this, hundreds of years before Christ was born, God foretold this. Here's the prophet Isaiah again. For behold, and, and I want you to listen to the words because Revelation is, is riffing off the same theme. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. The former things that the prophet's talking about, that God's talking about, is our existence. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create, and I want you to pay attention to this, I create, because our second point is going to tap into this, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall there be heard in the sound of, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Look at Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for it anymore. For the former things have passed away. God does not stop just at a new heavens and new earth because of the work of Christ. In fact, that, that's, just, that's just setting up the context 
for what God does next, and that is this new community that we see in, in, in verses 9 through 27. Now, you might be thinking, well, what do you mean new community? Shouldn't that be a new city? Because we're talking about the new Jerusalem here, and this is where... Um, this is where one of those areas of the book of Revelation, if you just translate this literally, you're going to crash yourself into a ditch. Because while John is saying the new Jerusalem, what he really is referring to, he's using new Jerusalem as a metaphor for the people of God. And the reason this is the case is if you take this literally, then this new Jerusalem has walls that are 1,380 miles high. Okay, uh, a bit impractical to give you some perspective. It's 62 miles from the planet's surface to outer space. So if your walls are basically 1,400 miles, you can imagine that that's probably not going to fit on this planet, right? Our big clue, however, knowing that this is not referring to a literal city, but the people of God is actually in the text. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride. The wife of the lamb. Now, you know from our study that the bride of Christ, the lamb of the, the wife of the lamb, that's referring to God's people, right? The church. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And so we see right there in the text that what he's referring to are the people of God, the bride of Christ. Furthermore, for you like student types who like to study your Bible a lot, I know there's a lot of you out there like that. What are the two Old Testament books that, that their themes are riffing all through the book of Revelation? They both start with an E. Let's see if you're smart here. First one is, okay, it's not Ecclesiastes, so that narrows it down. It would be, yep, actually, yes, that's right. That's exactly right, Daryl. I was going in order. What's the one before Ezekiel, though? Exodus, yes. Why? Because the themes of what's happening in both Exodus and Ezekiel are happening in Revelation. Remember, in Exodus, it was about God's people being oppressed, living under suffering and persecution, and God bringing his great power of judgment on the very people oppressing his people and simultaneously delivering them out of their bondage. And we saw that all through the book of Revelation, especially in the beginning and middle section, where we're talking about the tribulation and God's people struggling, being persecuted by this world, and God would bring his power simultaneously judging the world and delivering his people. The later half of the book of Revelation riffed on the themes found in the book of Ezekiel. Because what's Ezekiel about? God's people living in exile. Under the pressure of living in a hostile foreign land. Constantly tempted to worship other gods and be led astray. But God promises one day I'll bring you back home. And so those themes are everywhere. In the last few chapters, Ezekiel, the later chapters of Ezekiel were really big. Ezekiel 38 and 39 were the big battle against Gog and Magog, and God finally wins the victory. Well, in Ezekiel 40, God takes Ezekiel onto a high mountain and shows him the temple, the new temple. Right here, we see the same thing happening after chapter 19, a great battle where God's victory is established, and God now brings John to a great high mountain and shows him a vision. But the imagery changes. It's not the temple. It is the city of Jerusalem, which is the people of God. And we've seen the imagery of a building used for a metaphor for God's people already in the book of Revelation. Remember Revelation chapter 11, when John was giving a measuring rod and was told to measure the courts and the temple. Because this is the people that were supposed to be a witness for God in the tribulation. Furthermore, back to our text. If you look at all the descriptions of this city, it carries all the symbolic continuity of being God's people. Look at verse 12. These gates 
are inscribed with the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 14, the foundations of the city have the name of the apostles, the 12 apostles of the land. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, the Old Testament and New Testament, they were always representative of the people of God. And then you get into verse 16 and 17, and notice, are you recognizing those two numbers, those sets of numbers? 12,000 and 144, you should, because in chapter 7, we saw those two numbers again, representing the, all the redeemed of God's people, the 144,000. And look at verses 18 to 20, notice, all the stones that, I mean, simply litter the city everywhere, they are the same stones that are in the chess piece of the high priest who would go before the Lord in the Holy of Holies in Exodus chapter 28, representing all the people of God on his chess piece. And finally, again, in verses 16 and 17, the exact measurements of the city is a cube, same length, same height, same width, and that's not a coincidence because in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20, the Holy of Holies, where God himself dwelt, was exactly the same dimensions, width, length, and height. The point of all this being, John is not describing to us a city. He's actually describing a context. And what is that context? The new life that God is promising his people. Listen to what the Greek scholar and theologian Robert Mount says about this. The city... Mounts believes that this is a metaphor for the people, but he's using the language that we have in the text. This city is magnificent beyond description. As the eternal dwelling place of God and his people, it is described in language that continually attempts to break free from its own limitations in order to do justice to the, to the reality it so imperfectly describes. In other words, the human language is buckling under the weight of the symbolic beauty and, and, and glory, and it cannot sufficiently carry the image. Which makes sense, because what did, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2? As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So if these 16 verses are not describing a literal city, but the context, what, how do we understand that context? Well, in order to do that, friends, we have to remember, who was this book originally written to? Not 21st century Americans in South Orange County, right? But to first century people in the Mediterranean. Cities and their walls and their structures were very common to them. So what does all this imagery mean when you have a high, impossibly high, impregnable wall that by their calculations is absurdly huge. It means there is no one, there is no danger that's going to come in and invade and harm you. That you are completely safe and you are protected. You are living in an impregnable fortress and you will never be pillaged and persecuted and ravaged again. Yet at the same time, this, this, this fortress has 12 gates. Now, they're always guarded, but these 12 gates are never closed. Well, that means there's just abundant access into this city. No matter where you're coming from, no matter who you are, whatever direction on the points of the compass, you have access to come in. You're not going to be shut out. You're going to have access to this safety and protection and this community. And best of all, in the middle of the city is God himself. So even though it's this like impenetrable fortress, you have abundant access no matter who you are, where you come from. Everyone is invited to be a part of this city. The gates will never close on you. 
Did you notice how the city was described? I mean, we talk about that. It's, it's a kind of cliche, right? Streets of gold. Well, this is literally where we got that from. The beauty, the affluence, the luxury describing everything. Did you notice they said these 12 gates? Now, you know how big the walls are, so I don't know how big the gates must be, but I'm imagining as big as that glass at least. Notice what it said. Made from a single pearl. I mean, talk about luxury and, and, and money that you could possibly imagine how much a pearl the size of that would be that's the point we can't affluence and beauty and luxury everything we could possibly want safety security community everyone's included everyone's invited everyone gets to come in and we're all going to be together friends this is everything our world is not this is a description of uh, this. This is a description of the balance of, of, of perfect completeness, purity, fellowship, abundance. It's everything we don't have in this world. It doesn't matter what your politics are. I was talking to somebody after the first hour. This describes a world that we're all trying to get, but it constantly keeps eluding us. And, and, and we all have different reasons for it. If, if you tend to be a liberal, you blame big business and corporate greed. If you're a conservative, you blame big government and personal irresponsibility. The problem is it's worse than any party will admit because they're both right. right. They're both right. Families in our culture are falling apart because we as a culture have abandoned moral accountability. Society is falling apart because we have a society, uh, as, a, as a culture, have, uh, or corporations and governments have abandoned fiscal responsibility and accountability. So everything's going to the wreck, basically. The liberals and conservatives are spot on with the problems that we're dealing with. But here at the end, we hear of a city that God makes it all new and it all works out. Now, to my, my, my cynical friends, or maybe my critical friends, and, and I know this because I've had this conversation, they'll say something like, see, this is really nice, this Christian pie-in-the-sky view that everything works out in the future, and that's okay. But this is the problem with religion, and this is the problem with Christianity. It might have a great vision of what's going to happen at the end, but it's got nothing for us today. Uh, so what if, if at the end, after all of our suffering and all the struggle, things work out? How does that help me now? That's an honest question. I mean, you think about who these people, this book was written to, though. People that were persecuted by government, ostracized by their societies, that understood want and suffering and marginalization and oppression and injustice. Anything more than any one of us could possibly imagine. Right? I don't know anybody in my personal life that has undergone what the believers that we read about in the, in the Bible have gone through as well. And this is a sure and guaranteed hope of what this coming transformation is going to, this vision of this, this coming transformation fueled how they lived in their day. You see, historians, when they read this, and theologians, they call this the, the beatific vision, right? Especially in the Orthodox churches, they, they hold on to what's called the beatific vision. It, it is an idea that something so glorious captivates your vision that it pulls you forward towards it. It keeps you going. In some sense, it's like a, a psychological or emotional or spiritual gravitational pull. And the bigger your vision, the big, bigger the object of your vision, the stronger that pull is going to be on your life. And this vision was so assured. Look at verse 5, where the one on the throne says, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and 
true. Friends, this is not just pie in the sky. This is a vision of what is to come that's supposed to transform our reality today. And, And the reality is hope I know in business circles they say hope is not a strategy, but you know what hope is? Hope is water for your soul. Hope is water for the soul. A couple years ago, I was, um, when I was doing my doctoral work, I came across a book by a psychologist and psychiatrist by the name of Viktor Frankl. I just thought of this last night, so I didn't make it into my sermon, but so I pulled out some of my notes. Uh, Frankl um, wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And it was a very insightful book on human nature, particularly because being a Jew, uh, Frankel was put in a concentration camp. And he got to witness the worst of humanity in this concentration camp. And and so when he was released years later and he wrote his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel talked about how when people are deprived of all dignity, all security, living under constant threat and misery and suffering, they will do anything to survive. It's a fascinating book on human nature. And Frankel said that to, to escape the wickedness of the present, many of his Jewish contemporaries in, in the camp with him, they, they would psychologically dwell in the past. They would pull from past memories, relationships, events, things behind them that was a good time to give them respite amongst all the suffering that they were enduring. But what Frankel said was that it was, it was the future that actually and truly spurred them on. If they had hope, if they had hope for a better day, that someday things would be different, they would then have meaning and they could survive. Frankel noted, though, those people who lost hope of the future lost also any sense of meaning and any sense of purpose, and they just simply gave up. And Frankel said those people, it didn't matter how badly the guards would beat them or scream at them or yell at them. They would not move. They would not change. They just simply died or they were executed by them. What I find so striking about what Frankel says about these Jewish uh, individuals living in the concentration camp is that there's a lot of comparison to Americans, people in living, us living in postmodern times who we have, by contrast, everything compared to them. We live with unprecedented ease and convenience and freedoms. But there are still thousands upon thousands who just give up and they die. David Wells, which is this book, he he was reading Frankel's work as well. He made this, this, this observation. I want to read it to you. And he says, a future without hope or meaning, regardless of your current state, is a madness that no one can endure. The difference in contemporary America compared to the concentration camp is that there are ways to mask this slow death. We have abundance, we have entertainment, we have recreation, we've got sex, we've got drugs. And he says all these distractions hold at bay the inevitable self-destruction by despair because your future has already died. That's powerful. He's saying that we're not much different in postmodern times here in contemporary America than the people who gave up hope and died in concentration camps. The only difference is that now we have things to distract us and they hold at bay our self-destruction by despair because we know the future's dead. When you have hope for tomorrow, like the Bible's giving us hope, you actually have strength to live today. This is not pie-in-the-sky theology. 
This is as practical as it gets. And if you don't believe a, a Jewish psychologist, maybe you believe a, an eight-year-old little league player. A friend of mine told me this story. One Saturday afternoon, he was walking by a little league game, and he decided to just watch the game. He asked the kid in the dugout, probably eight years old, nine years old, something like that, seven or eight, what's the score? And the kid said, 18 to nothing. We're behind. My friend said, wow, you must be pretty, pretty, pretty bummed out. You must be pretty discouraged. And I love the kid's response. The kid says, why would I be discouraged? We haven't even gotten up the bat yet. <laughs> Hope is water for the soul. I mean, that kid probably didn't know much better, but that was the perfect response. Hope for the future is what gives you strength for today. So the question you have to ask yourself is, what is your hope? What is your beatific vision that's pulling you forward? And, and what's it based on? And this is a question you've got to ask whether you're a Christian or not. Because sometimes, as Christians, we're not very different than, than those who don't have the gospel message. What is your hope? Is it just wishful thinking that life will be okay? Is it what your parents taught you, the values you got when you were younger? Is it what your peer group clings to? Now, I'm not trying to poke holes. I'm actually saying that we do need a hope. We were designed this way. The question I'm asking is, what's it rooted in? And, and as Christian, here's the thing, whether you're a Christian or not. If your hope, the thing that pulls you forward in life, is rooted in the things of this world, to that degree, and you can see this in the psychological literature. To that degree, you're either going to be very fragile or you're going to be a fearful and angry person. And, and here's why. Because if your hope is in the things of this world, this world is breaking down. Things get taken away. Things break apart. Things die. Things pass away. Right? And, and so you're just going to be emotionally frail. You'll put your hope in something, it goes away. And if you have the resiliency to, to overcome that, you put your hope in something else, and it's going to go away and on and on you go. You just become fragile at some point. Or you become really fearful because you know how precarious that hope is. And so you, you kind of get obsessive to protect it and, and you lose sight of what God wants in your life because you're all about protecting your hope or you just become angry because you're constantly living with hypervigilance to protect the thing that, that, that your heart is in. To the degree our hope is in anything other than ultimately. Now, you, you can have relative hopes in these things. I'm not saying you can't. But if you're a Christian, our ultimate hope has to be in God himself, right? The, the Christian's hope is rooted in, in the history in a person. Hebrews 6.19 says this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, now if there was therapeutic language back then, the, the writer of Hebrews would have said, this is how you stay emotionally stable and strong, right? But he says, we have a sure and steadfast hope, uh, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What's he talking about? He's talking about, what is this hope that enters? He's talking about Jesus, who after his crucifixion went before the, in the, behind the, the Holy of Holies before the Lord himself and offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. And the writer says, that is our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And the Christ of history is the same Christ that will come back to conclude history. His words are trustworthy and true. Friends, we can look back in history on this book. I mean, this, this it's an amazing book. We don't have time to unpack the truths, the, the veracity of the scriptures. But the whole idea that has been translated numerous times, you can't believe it, that's ignorance. People don't know what they're talking about. We can look back in history on his words. 
we can presently experience him through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can hope expectantly because he promises to come back. Friends, this is, as I said, it's not pie in the sky. This is what the Christians for thousands of years who lived through some brutal, difficult circumstances have rooted their lives into. In every country, every continent, every culture. This is the most practical thing we have is because a future hope transforms our present reality like it did has it has always done so we have a new heavens a new earth revelation 21 22 says us in a new community and we conclude finally by basically there's just this new creation we go into chapter 22 here and as i said this is kind of the emotional center of these chapters particularly that verse that they will see his face. That's a, that's a callback to the book of Exodus when God says to, to Moses, no man shall see my face and live. So Moses, I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock and you can see my back as I walk away. Nobody can see his face and live. But Revelation says we will see his face. Friends, this is the apex of the beatific, beatific vision. That we will see God. The God who makes all things new every time, forever and ever, new, 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 for eternity, eternity, he will surprise us, for eternity, he will thrill us, for forever, he will astound us, he will delight us, and he will captivate us forever and ever and ever. I cannot even imagine what that's like. I mean, I have ADD, right? But no, God will continually surprise me. I will never be bored. I will be continually thrilled and captivated by the one who makes all things new. My favorite verse in the Bible, Psalm 1611. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand pleasures forevermore. That's the God of Revelation here. You remember a few weeks ago when I talked about the danger of our desires and that by design God created us to have insatiable desires. Remember I talked about that and I said that why, that's why it's so important to make sure our desires are located on the right thing. Well, here is our desires right focus where our insatiable desires will be met by an inexhaustible fount of desire forever and ever who makes all things new. Friends, the Bible literally is an open book inviting all of us to experience this. And, and, and to reduce Christianity, to reduce the Christian faith to a bunch of rules and do's and don'ts and moralities, and, and this is what we got to do, is to miss this beatific vision of beauty, delight, pleasure, and desire. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there isn't some life change that has to happen in us as Christians. There's, there's a ton of change that has to happen in us in Christians. But, but what is the draw? Is it because you want to be a rule keeper or you're just captivated by this vision that says, I want that. I'm drawn to that. So that my obedience to God is a joy. That's just something I got to do to get something. Friends, do you want to see his face, the one that makes all things new? You can. Well, how do we do that? Look at verse 5. He tells us. We have to look at the one who says this. Verse 5 says, And he who was seated on the throne, the one who says, Behold, I'm making all things new, is enthroned. He sits upon a throne. 
You're getting what I'm saying by emphasizing throne. He's a king. He's a sovereign. Here's my point. The newness of God can flow into your life in direct proportion that you submit to his kingdom rule. That's what I'm getting at. The newness of God, that all that we've been talking about, flows into your life in direct proportion to you submitting to his kingdom rule. He is a king, after all. He does have a throne. He has a kingdom. But, but why, would, why, would you, why would you not want to trade in your petty fiefdom for his amazing kingdom? Well, why would you not want to be Christ-centered as opposed to being self-centered? Why would you want, want to keep joy? Why would you want to keep despair and not trade it for joy? Why would you want to hold on to the new when we were made, or hold on to the old when we were made for the new? Why do you want to hold on to what's passing when we were designed for what's coming forever and ever? That's what we were made for. Let me conclude by, um, I, I, I don't know if it was last September or last Christmas, but I, or the Christmas before, but I read the Chronicles of Narnia books. And, and I never read them before. I never read them. Even though I've been a Christian, I know that's a sin if you're a Christian not to read C.S. Lewis. But I never read it because, A, they're children's books, right? But, but I realized children's books in the 50s is kind of like college books for us now, right? It's just very different. So I read all seven books, and it was over the Christmas break, so I had some time. And they're pretty fast reads. They're engaging. And if you've never read it, I'm telling you, you should read it. Especially if you're new to the Christian faith, because Lewis, the whole story is an allegory of the Christian life and the gospel and all that God is doing. Well, in the very last book, I think it's called The Last Battle, as things are wrapping up toward the end of this series, when all the worlds have collapsed and a new Narnia is reborn and all those who have died have returned better than they were when they were first alive and everything is newer, brighter, purer, sweeter, shinier than they were before, impossible as that seems. There's this scene with the Pevensey children, and if you're familiar, there's, there's four kids that go through the story, and they're saddened because they think they have to return home. Because in every book, Aslan pulls them into Narnia, they do their thing, and then they get sent back to the world. And so they're a bit saddened because they have to go home now. But Aslan sheds light on the fact that the railway accident at the beginning of the very last book, they, had a, they, they thought they were in a railway accident, but then they ended up, they just realized it was the magic of Narnia pulling them back into the world. Well, at the end of this book, they realized that the railway accident that they thought was just the magic pulling them back was, in fact, a real accident that took place. Aslan turns to them and says, You do not look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy, the young one, says, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, says Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts left, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother, and all of you are, as you used to call it, in the Shadowlands. You're dead. And with this, joy began to overflow in the Pevensey children's hearts. And Aslan concluded, the school term is over, children. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. Friends, as as Revelation records the end of human history, we find that it's just simply a new beginning for those who trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you built us. You made us for a desire for the new, the bright, the eternal. 
the morning dawn. But our lives, our experience tells us that we are doomed to live in a world of night and decay. And everything within us wants this to be different. And until Christ came, there was no other way. But because Christ came, the firstborn over all creation, the conqueror of death and the destroyer of sin, we are now destined for the new, bright, eternal morning. Father, I pray that there will be nobody in this room who leaves without knowing that they can be made new again for the newness that you promise for us every day throughout eternity. Father, we thank you for the way this book ends. It was so hard, the difficulty, the struggle, the suffering that we read about, that we know happens throughout history and even today, concludes with this beatific vision of what it's all going to be like in the new heavens and new earth. And we thank you, Christ, for making it possible. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.